Revelation 21:10, and then verses, and then chapter 22, verses 22, uh, 1 to 5. That that's our reading. So let's start with that to set the stage for our discussion. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then we jump to chapter. 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street, the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I chose that passage today, which is from the Revised Common Lectionary, but I just felt that this was an appropriate next step in our journey through uh, the season of Easter leading up to Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is officially two weeks from today, but we're going to hit that topic pretty hard next week because we'll all be together as a family, and it's the Holy Spirit that we celebrate on Pentecost that makes us a family of God. So it's really important to me that that we combine that uh, invitation of Christ to join God's family and even sort of uh, have a, a spiritual transfusion into the family of God by way of the Holy Spirit. And so the whole theme of family next week is, is tied to the fact that we are given unity with each other and with our Lord through Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, then, we have a, a, an informed hearing. We, you know, the, the, if I get where I need to go today in a reasonable amount of time, hopefully by the time we're finished, you'll, you'll have a grasp of how your Holy Spirit living is making you more a part of the kingdom of God, maybe than you even realize, that you may be living in righteousness more than you think because of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a theme we really want to hit hard. And, and uh, Connie was kind to mention that I've been talking about John Wesley quite a bit. It turns out that if you have my sermon notes in front of you, which I don't know if I've told you lately, but they're always out there in this plastic container that's on the table with the bulletins. And you can also view them in the church app anytime. I always upload them to the app every week so you can view the notes that way as well. Uh, these notes are taken literally verbatim from teachings of John Wesley. I don't usually do that, and when I do, I want to make sure I give proper citations, you know, because it's not ethical to do otherwise. But I do want you to hear clearly that uh, what you read on the notes and what I say will be slightly different, but the idea is to communicate to you some really classic Wesleyan concepts that inform our Christian living and why it is why we are, especially during this time of discernment, really committed to our Wesleyan way. That's not going out even if we do decide not to be a part of something 
loosely associated with John Wesley. The Wesleyan teaching, the Methodist heritage that we hold to is good and worth repeating and worth continuing, and we will as long as I'm the pastor. So that's why I wanted to share these Wesleyan ideas with you to give you a taste of what really is there every week. We just don't we just don't say it as plainly as I'm saying it right now. So those notes are particularly helpful today if you want to understand the mind of John Wesley because there's a lot of his words in these notes. But I don't want to read to you, so I'm going to try to paraphrase. And the thing that I want you to hear clearly is that the kingdom of heaven may have a divine throne room that we've just heard described in the book of Revelation. But there's a connection between the throne room of God the and and. King Jesus and this present reality that we live in. There is a connection that it's a little hard for us to comprehend and Lord knows I've been working on it for years so I don't know if I can explain it as as adequately as I would hope but the idea that before Christ opens the way to heaven, before salvation through Christ, The throne room of God and the presence of God is known to people on earth in space and time on a very limited basis. If you could just sort of imagine that periodically portals would open in the fabric of time and space and God's divine nature would pour through for a specific purpose at a specific time. And so you could say, like, for example, in the... uh, in the uh, Exodus when they're in the wilderness and, and uh, the scripture tells us in Exodus that a guy named Bezalel was gifted by God to build and create the things that were associated with the tabernacle. And so for a little moment, God sort of opens the portal of space and time and that throne room is on the other side of the portal and he throws something through there that we would just say is the Holy Spirit to a guy named Bezalel and lo and behold, he's gifted for a particular purpose in a particular time. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see this expression of the Holy Spirit of God coming through these these occasional breaches that are made for that purpose. Otherwise, the world of the Old Testament is pretty much without God unless God chooses to be present. So thinking back, taking that idea a little bit further, think back to when Moses met God at the burning bush. You know, the bush wasn't really on fire. What he was seeing was a hole in the fabric of space and time where the glory of God was blasting through. And when he stepped up to that place, God said, man, you go any further, you're on holy ground and it's gonna hurt. And so you better kick off your shoes and you better show some respect for the danger you're in here. And then Moses experiences the same thing again up on the mount, right? And, and God says, I'm gonna let you have a look at things, but you better hide in the cleft of the rock or you're gonna get hurt. You know, and even then he comes down with that heavenly suntan, right? You know, and everybody's scared of him. So I'm trying to give you the idea that before Christ, the whole Old Testament is talking about a relationship with God that's very subjective. It it really depends on circumstances and it depends entirely on God's will. But after Christ, we have basically been given free passage back and forth across the borderlands between heaven and earth. And it doesn't literally mean that we, you know, can transport ourselves into the presence of God, but then again, maybe it does. And most of us will just never really know what that's like. 
But we hear, for example, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul had this, what Catholic people would call a beatific vision. And what it really means is, is that in some way or another, he's transported from his earthly presence to the heavenly realm, if in spirit or in, in some sort of vision or something. And even Peter claimed an experience like that. We Last two weeks, we were talking about how Peter said he was having a vision and God communicated to him how the gospel was for the Gentiles too. And, and so, again, what I'm saying is, is even though probably you and I will never be able to point to a time when we had this sort of beatific experience or this moment when we felt transported from this time and space to the timeless realm of God's throne room, nevertheless, it's, it's a porous barrier now because of Jesus. And when you accept Christ as your savior, you are given a... a like free passage, you know, you're, you're no longer separated from God by your sin. You're now able to enter what Moses couldn't do. You can do because your sin has been forgiven. Your natural sin has been forgiven. And yet there is this absence of righteousness in us that still prevents us from really experiencing the fullness of God's glory and grace in our lives. Uh, what Wesley would call being altogether Christian. And he recognized that this was a lifelong pursuit. That's why the word sanctification comes up so often in our conversations here at Shiloh as we embrace this very Wesleyan idea that our pursuit of righteousness is what we live for while we await our transportation to the heavenly realm. So this story from uh, Revelation, and I'll tell you just for the, just as an aside, you know, as many of you have sat through my teaching on the Revelation, and I, I just want you to hear this if you haven't sat through it. It's a really terrific book, and it would inform so much of your Christian living if you would investigate it. But most people are terrified of that book. Most people, if they're not terrified, they're just frustrated by its language and they feel like they just can't read it because it doesn't make any sense and it's weird. And, and you know, a lot of people just hear things about Revelation. And of course, to be quite honest with you, there's a lot of Christians out there, even preachers who make it more inaccessible by reputation because of the way they choose to interpret it and the way they choose to communicate what its meaning is. But you know what's deep inside the book of Revelation? Because you might remember that we did a series of sermons about this a while back. Um, deep inside that book are basically two stories. The first story is the seven letters to the seven churches, which could also be seven kinds of Christians. So if you were to say to me, well, what does righteousness look like anyway? How do, I, how do I live as a kingdom citizen while I'm here on earth? I get it. I'm no longer burdened with the power of sin in my natural being. In other words, what Wesley would call canceled sin, he was referring to as that natural sin, that tendency we have. You know, I was with my my, uh, well, with Laura's whole family yesterday, by the way, her dad is near his end here on this journey. And so we've all been going and hanging out there. And, you know, my little grandchild is there even while we're celebrating the life of her great granddaddy, right? And, and I'm looking at my little grandchild and Jonathan tells me, my son, he says, you know, 
she's already starting to get a little ornery about some things. She said, Dad, she likes to pull on my beard and it hurts now. And it used to be she was just playing with, but now she's pulling hard on it and trying to see what kind of reaction she gets. So I look at her and I go, don't do that. And then she cries. And I said, how's that feel when your baby cries because of something you said? He says, I don't like it. And I said, well, get used to it. (laughs) You will have to correct this angel. And see, there's the thing, right? You know, we have this willfulness that's dialed into our nature. It's a very natural part of who we are, and it's called natural sin. It's something that Adam gave us. And while that is a mystical sort of expression in that sense, but it is nonetheless part of our nature. But there's something in us, and this is something I really, really love to talk about, but I don't have a very good way of expressing it. I actually know a song by Rich Mullins that explains it better than I can explain it, but music is like that. It usually does better than preaching. But there's something in us that longs for a home. There's something in us that longs for a place to be where we feel safe and secure and accepted for what we are and who we are. There's a natural longing for our spiritual home that's as real in us as natural sin. And so these two energies, these two, two forces in, of our, in our, our being are at constant odds with each other. Our natural bent towards sinning, which is to reject God's authority in our lives, basically, and to reject God as the ultimate supreme being that, well, whether we agree with God or not, is always right. And then there's this other part of us very naturally wants to be accepted by God, that wants to be home. And so when we read in the Revelation, the second part of its biggest story, we see the home going. Or another way you could put it is, after those seven letters to the seven churches and the seven kinds of Christians, the rest of Revelation is talking to us about the reversal of Genesis. It's gradually going backward through Genesis to a time when Eden is again when we are like Adam and Eve in the garden with God, no longer separated in any way, except now because of the victory over sin and death and more than that over the enemies of God, now it is more than a garden, it is a kingdom and there's a throne room. And so what you see in this passage we just read is this beautiful description of the throne room of God where this river of life is flowing outward. And on either side, it's like a garden. There's a tree of life. There are trees of life. And so the garden has this throne room in the middle or this, this place where the Lord God res- resides that's in the center of it all, but it flows outward. And it's all life and light. And there's a part of us that just grasps for light. Who hasn't groped in the dark in the middle of the night at times, or maybe you're walking through a dark passage and and your eyes are just laser focused on any source of light you can find. It is your natural tendency to hunger for and to seek out the light. And when you're in the darkness, you feel vulnerable and afraid and you feel as though some dark, character or creature that prefers to be hidden in from the light is just ready to pounce on you at a moment's notice. And if you're imaginative and you watch a lot of movies and things, read a lot of books, well, you could really psych yourself out. But at the end of the day, that's your homing beacon. 
That's your natural tendency to want to go home. And the place you want to go home to has this throne room we've just read about at the center. And from it, all light and life flows. And that's the whole point of the latter half of Genesis to show us, or Genesis of Revelation, to show us Genesis in reverse, to show us that we're on our way back to our home because our natural home, if it had not been for natural sin, we would have already known that we had a natural home that we desired to be in. And the reason that we wanna get that in our heads is so that we can spend a couple of minutes talking about what it means to be, to be righteous or to live righteously. And righteousness is a word that, well, you know, let's see, I think in Ferris Bueller's day off, some of the cliques in the high school said he was a righteous dude. I'm looking at Scott because I thought he might get the reference, but here's the thing. Righteous dude is not what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about sanctification, right? We're talking about something that has more to do with right living and a rightness of being. And so there's a, there's a contrast because they're like two sides of the same coin. On one side, you are right in being because of God. See, because of God's grace, his son has saved you. You've accepted that gift of salvation. And because you've been born again, you've been made into someone who is right in your nature. So the first thing you have to understand is, is that because of sin, natural sin, you weren't right in your nature. You, you know, it's heartbreaking to think that my beautiful little granddaughter is in her heart imperfect in the sense that in her being is this growing independence that will be peppered with signs of sort of independence from God that is what natural sin is. And so in our tradition, that's one of the reasons we baptize babies is to kind of, you know, ward off that tendency. But what we're really doing is dedicating them to a life under Christ's authority, while we who are charged with giving leadership in this child's life will do most of the heavy lifting until they can then come on their own to make that profession of faith. But we have then this rightness of being, which makes us righteous in God's sight, okay? That means when God looks at you, he sees you in effect standing behind Jesus with your head poking out from under his arm, right? And you're safe because you stand behind Jesus for your righteousness. But the other side of the coin is righteous living and that's something that a lot of us don't strive for because you gotta do that part on purpose. You gotta do that part because you can't help it. And that won't happen naturally. That's something that you have to do. But I say it won't happen naturally, but now that I think about it, I wanna take back just a little bit and say, well, you have a natural desire to do it because of your new nature. And so there's something in you that informs your conscience when you're not doing it that may not have been there before you were born again, you know? So there are times when you realize that if I really believe that I've been born again in Christ and the Holy Spirit is alive in me, then maybe I shouldn't think this way about people. Or maybe I shouldn't feel this way about things. Or maybe I shouldn't whatever, right? There's this part of you that is informed by your new righteousness that struggles against your flesh. 
and reminds you that this is not your home. This is a place where we are temporarily occupying enemy territory as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. So when we read the passage that Jesus taught us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this is what he's talking about. He's saying that we no longer look downriver to the place where we used to live, but we look up the river of life to the throne room of Christ. That is seeking first the kingdom of Christ. Now, I used to do a lot of backpacking when I was younger, and I've hiked in some high mountains and some pretty treacherous territory, and, and you know, Following rivers is a very smart thing to do when you're in the deep wilderness because you need water supply and generally water leads to the places you need to be either because you're exploring and you want to see where the source of the water is or because you want to get home and you know that the water's going downhill and it's going to lead you somewhere you want to be. Watch survivor shows or something. You know what I'm talking about. But here's what I do know about hiking along rivers. It can be really easy in some places and it can be really hard in other places especially when you're carrying a heavy burden on your back. And you know, there are times when making a small amount of distance alongside the river can take all day because of what you have to do to make your way up to the headwaters. And in very real sense, following the river of life is that way. As we journey through our life with Christ, we are heading home. Righteousness is a desire to be home with Christ in that kingdom realm. And as we are making our way home, there are times when the walking is easy and the water is sweet and the shade is precious. And there are times when it is rocky and treacherous, and slippery, and the rain is falling and it feels as though you'll never make it past this current obstacle. But if you keep aiming upstream on the river of life, you're going to be okay. And what else have you got to do? You have all eternity to finish this journey. You have all eternity to finish the journey home to the heavenly realm. And even after you die, you can continue that journey. That too is another Wesleyan concept that I also Share. In fact, I also believe that is one of my... So if I'm not talking about Wesley, I'm usually talking about C.S. Lewis. So we're not going to teach Lewis theology right now, but they basically say the same thing about this one for sure. That it's an eternal pursuit. So sanctification is something that would really be awesome if you could achieve it while on earth, and some people might. Better people than me, for sure. But... For the rest of us, it's a pursuit that we can spend the rest of eternity on. But seeking first the kingdom of Christ is something you have to do on purpose. And you have to listen to that inner voice that the Holy Spirit has released when it tells you, hey, you sure you shouldn't knock it off right about now? Are you sure you shouldn't choose a different path now? Are you sure that you're keeping the best company right now? You know, these are the things that seem moral at first, but for a Christian believer filled with the Holy Spirit, they're more than moral. They're more than moral. They're, they're really about desiring God or the kingdom, 
and the righteousness of God. And see, we get hung up on morality as Christians and in a strange way, actually sin in the process. We are Christians by virtue of our salvation through Jesus Christ and by virtue of our new birth in the Holy Spirit. And yet we spend an inordinate amount of time judging people as though we have the authority. We spend an inordinate amount of time being unrighteous in our self-righteousness or sanctimony. And that's when you want to hear the kingdom calling. You want to hear the Holy Spirit saying, time out. We do that. You don't have to. We got that. You don't need to handle it. And that's because many times Christian believers are more concerned about other people's righteousness than their own. And so sanctification is really a highly personal thing. But the cool thing that happens when we are sanctified, when we're really living for sanctification's sake, and we're asking God every day as we start a new day, Lord, change my nature yet again. It isn't to win God's approval. That's been done. It isn't in order to seem good to our friends, to our associates. We do it because we have this drive in us. It's why we pray the prayer of illumination before I get up and talk. Because this inner drive is motivating us to seek first the kingdom rather than judge whether Pastor Dan's got a good one today or he's going to lay an egg. And I promise you, I have to remind myself of that too. But it's not my word to preach. It is my responsibility, but it is God's word. And his word is, is spend the rest of your life seeking righteousness because it's good for you. And it will bring you that much closer to my throne and I want so badly to have you right here before my throne. Read some more from Revelation to see what I'm talking about. Seek first the righteousness of the kingdom of Christ. Don't wait. That would be the last thing to say. And this again from Wesley who says, Oh, how I will praise God when the light of his countenance shall again be lifted up upon my soul. In other words, if you don't feel close to God, then you don't praise him. <laughs> you know, like, hey, I'm having one of those rocky places where it's really hard to go upstream towards the source of light and life. And I don't think God even cares that I'm trying so hard to get through this obstacle. So I'll praise him when I get there. I'll praise him when he solves my problem. I'll praise him when he fixes this. How selfish, how unrighteous to think that way. If you lived every day in the moment and you knew that God was with you every day in the moment, asking you to see that you are this hair's breadth of a distance from the timeless eternal realm of God where all is light and life. If you knew how close you are, you know, Jesus said that to people. You remember when you read the gospels, how sometimes he would say, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, I'm not gonna accuse my Lord of an understatement, but gosh, when he says that, it's like, holy smokes. When you think of some of the things that happened while he was walking with us on this planet, you begin to realize that, that it was paper thin 
this barrier between our time and space and our earthly existence and the eternal realm. It's unreal. And if you lived every day as though you knew that, this morning I went down in the basement to get something and I hit my head on a part of my basement that I frequently hit my head on. <laughs> and I said, oh God. And immediately I said, I'm sorry, God. I mean, I really did. This is a very private moment, but I promise you it's exactly how it went down. Because as soon as I used his name in vain, I felt the weight of that. And I thought, oh Lord, I can't believe I just cursed you because I was unable to duck sufficiently. <laughs> and, you know, he forgave me. He probably forgave me before it happened. Heck, I don't know. Angels might have been saying, duck! <laughs> Either way, it didn't work. And so if you see a little mark on my head, you know, they're easy to see when you don't have hair. I think it's time to wrap up and I just want you to hear that, well, first of all, the words of Wesley are on the page and he wouldn't talk anything like I do, promise you. He's, he was better educated and he liked Latin. He liked using Latin phrases in his sermons. Can you imagine what would happen if I threw in a Latin phrase once in a while in my sermons? So, well, look at that uppity so-and-so. <laughs> but he got away with it because when he taught, it was acceptable. So I promise you that what you've heard is a very uh, personalized, idealized translation. But the teaching that I want you to hear most plainly is that Methodists believe, Wesley believed, that being saved and holding membership in a church was not sufficient. And people would argue against that by saying, yeah, but we're not supposed to think that our works are vital to our relationship with God. We shouldn't think that we can earn our way into heaven. And that's true. And Wesley would say, well, you're talking about two different things. When you're talking about your relationship before you were saved, it depends on you realizing you can't earn your way into heaven and then accepting that Christ is the only way and it's a gift that you don't deserve and can't earn. So once you get past that point, you've been justified. Remember a couple weeks ago, I told you about justifying grace? Well, he, his, Wesley would just say to you, look, if you've been justified by God's grace, then that's a prior discussion. Works don't factor into what happens to you from this point forward. Now your works are not in any way meant to impress humanity or to impress God. Your works are simply an expression of God's spirit alive in you. And so... Somebody, a new Christian, might ask you someday, well, how do I know the Holy Spirit's at work in me? Maybe you've asked that question when you've heard me talk about it. And what John Wesley would say, plain and simple, is here's how you know that you have been born again and that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Because you are irresistibly drawn to your heavenly home. You are irresistibly drawn to a way of righteousness to the kingdom of God. There's something in you that won't let up on this need to live a more holy life, a more sanctified life. But the devil's right there to confuse you and point to people you should be like. And there's where we all get messed up because we start playing these games that are so natural to humans and many creatures on earth where we compete for supremacy. And you know what Jesus said would be a sure sign that you've been born again, that the Holy Spirit's alive in you? You would be meek 
and a servant and devoted entirely to glorifying the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Burn it upon our hearts. Change our nature. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.